Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and as always, thanks for listening to our latest episode. This past weekend marked the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. Much has been said and written about that day, from President Biden right down to none other than me, who talked about that day on several local BBC stations here in the United Kingdom. It's a time to remember friends and loved ones, the almost 3,000 who died that day, as well as many, many more who answered the call as first responders. And sadly, so sadly, they don't always get the recognition they deserve. Many of them died, picked up toxins in their lungs, and some of them were not adequately either recognized or compensated. And it's just so sad. Uh, And a lot of people perhaps forget that a lot of first responders were told that the air down by ground zero was safe to breathe. And then it turned out it wasn't. So many of those responders breathed in toxic, dust-filled air, trying their level best to help other people. We need to remember them as well. So many of them died young from lung disease and other ailments associated with their service. Many of them had to fight to be properly compensated for what they did even to this day, 20 years later. Many people have remarked about how people in the U.S. and especially in New York City came together in the wake of the attacks, looked out for each other, did what they could to make the burden of those who lost loved ones lighter. Would it have lasted throughout those 20 years and beyond? In 2021, we see Americans divided against each other on issue after issue after issue. I think part of the reason is because although we reverently mark the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks, when the remembrances are done and the TV cameras turned off, we will go right back to the way we are. That, to me, is truly sad. I want to take a look at something about 9-11 that very few people pay attention to. Its genesis comes from an op-ed piece in the Washington Post by former federal prosecutor Nick Lewin. He points out that five men charged in connection with the attack remain confined at Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, that's in Cuba, and have been there for the better part of 20 years, two decades. They are charged, but not yet tried, under the military commission system put in place after 9-11. In addition, 27 other men are detained at Gitmo and have been for 20 years as well, without trial or even charges brought against them. The military commission system that allows this to happen was put in place because people at the time thought that some of the folks would get off if they were tried in a civilian federal court. I remember very clearly the arguments favoring military trials at the time. Yet all this time later, yes, these men have been detained, but they have yet to actually face justice. And I had a problem with the whole military commissions thing going back to its inception. I always thought the people that they arrested and detained in connection with 9-11 ought to be tried 
in federal court, civilian federal court. Lewin argues that it is past time that they are tried under federal law and either convicted or acquitted. He should know. He prosecuted three civilian jury trials of men accused of crimes connected to September 11th. All three were tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison without parole. That took less than five years total. Right now, the five men charged with crimes connected to 9-11 have been stuck in pre-trial hearings since 2012. That would be nine years ago. That military commission system that everyone thought would work so well turned out not to have worked at all. Now, I don't want people to get me wrong here. I am certainly not advocating that these people, whether the five charged or the 27 held without charge, should be let go tomorrow. Far from it. I'm just not sure it makes perfect sense to keep people locked up, in some cases without charge, in a base that's on the soil of a country we're not even friendly with. What if any of these people were to escape Gitmo? Can we count on the Cuban government to help us capture them? Maybe, maybe not. It would seem to make sense to me, as President Biden looks to close Gitmo, that those incarcerated there should be transferred to ADX, the supermax prison located in Colorado. From the accounts I've read, ADX is no walk in the park. The Unabomber, Shoe Bomber, and Boston Marathon Bomber are already housed there. So was El Chapo, the murderous Mexican drug dealer. Surely those incarcerated in connection to the 9-11 terror attacks can be housed there until they finally face justice. I agree with Nick Lewin that justice should be best served by these people facing trial in civilian federal courts. I know their incarceration is legally permissible, even for 20 years. But is it right? Is this how we as Americans are comfortable doing things? Keep in mind that the Nuremberg trials lasted for four years after the end of World War II. Can we really do no better than keeping people locked up for 20 years without charges or trial? Now, what I'm about to say may confound some people, but I do believe that it's true. The 3,000 victims of 9-11, plus the hundreds of first responders who had their lives cut short before their time, are owed justice. That means presenting evidence against those charged, charging those who have been held without charge, and yes, even entertaining the possibility of freeing those against whom there is no evidence of wrongdoing. I know that last part is tough, but in the name of American justice, it must be done. We owe it to ourselves to do better. Up next, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate and the GOP's reaction to it. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're with us. President Joe Biden has for a while resisted calls 
to impose widespread vaccine mandates, even as the Delta variant of COVID-19 pushed up infection rates. Well, it looks like he's changed his mind. Biden is invoking a 51-year-old law in a novel application to mandate vaccinations or weekly tests for 80 to 100 million American workers. In doing so, he's showing an aggressive posture that will put his opposition to the test. And yes, there is a great deal of opposition. Biden's order mandates that any employer with 100 or more workers Federal employees and healthcare workers must get vaccinated or tested. Ironically, many employers across the country seem to be okay with this. Republican governors, on the other hand, not so much. Not even some Democratic governors are down. The Republicans certainly are falling all over each other, condemning Biden as authoritarian and his mandate as unconstitutional. This is rich coming from elected officials who cheered on every authoritarian dictate from Biden's predecessor, and still to this day allow that man to run their party. The governor of South Carolina vowed to fight Biden to, quote, the gates of hell. Good luck with that. It's interesting that the president has chosen this issue to draw a line in the sand, and that's just what he did. To reports that some Republican governors are planning to sue to stop him, he replied, and I'm quoting here, have at it. Interesting gauntlet to throw down. Biden knows when and how to pick his fights. I think there are more than a few people who wish he'd act the same way about, for example, voter suppression, the Texas abortion law, and a few other things. The nomination of a new boss at the AFT, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. He seems to be reluctant to take on Congress, but more than willing to pick fights with red state governors. It's not like they don't deserve it. Many of them, and they know who they are, have risked the lives of their constituents. And we're talking now about millions of people with nonsensical drivel about freedom and state authority. I keep wondering how long people would allow elected officials to delude them into believing that the vaccine is more dangerous than the disease itself. They run this even in the face of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issuing data that says unvaccinated Americans are 11 times more likely to die from coronavirus than those who are vaccinated. That's right, folks. This is the CDC. And they say unvaccinated Americans are 11 times more likely to die from coronavirus than those who are vaccinated. Published reports say this backs up the view of the scientific community that vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal have prolonged the length of the pandemic. In particular, the most recent surges that have devastated parts of the country. It doesn't take a scientist to figure out that states where the vaccine rate is low are also states with high rates of infection, hospitalization, and death. To be fair, on a couple of, uh, couple of counts, there are elected officials who encouraged getting vaccinated, who at the same time are hesitant about Biden's mandate. And there are some red state governors who fit in that category. It's also true that some people are nervous because of reports that say two jabs 
don't necessarily work 100% to shield you from the disease. And yet, Biden's mandate will do much more good than harm. I don't think those threats of court challenges will amount to a grain of sand. Quiet as is kept, the vaccinated are starting to lose patience with refuseniks. The loud minority have had the floor for a long, long time. And when I say that, I'm talking about the freedom rallies. By the way, they don't just go on in the U.S. They've gone on over here in England and in other parts of the world as well, where people are saying that their constitutional rights are being violated, uh, that there is some kind of uh, authoritarian, fascistic element to vaccine mandates and getting the vaccine, mask wearing, which, by the way, is ought to be a separate category all by itself because there's some people who are just fanatic and fanatical about not wearing a mask. But I have to tell you, the tide appears to be turning and people aren't going to tolerate ugly scenes at supermarkets, on planes, and other public places where people try to claim the freedom to be stupid. Everyone may not agree with Joe Biden's vaccine mandate. Yet time will tell whether this decision, as the scientific community seems to think, will save lives. I'm betting it will. And finally, while I may praise the president for his guts in mandating the vaccine, I've got another beef with him where I don't think he's shown any guts at all. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. When it comes to challenging the nation's love affair with guns, it doesn't seem like most politicians, even those who are in favor of gun, gun control, have the courage of their convictions all the time. The gun lobby always seems to win. Such is the case with President Biden's decision to withdraw the nomination of David Chipman to head the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or AFT, or ATF, excuse me. He was the target, was Chipman, of a well-financed campaign by the National Rifle Association and other gun rights groups to kill his nomination because, among other things, he likened buying guns during the current pandemic to a zombie apocalypse. You want to tell me it's okay to oppose a nomination over that? In the same year, there have been mass shootings in Atlanta, Indianapolis, San Jose, and Boulder, Colorado, and that's just in 2021. Some say it's also because he was a consultant to gun control organizations founded by, among others, former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Regardless, you couldn't find a better person to enforce federal gun laws than David Chipman. He served in the ATF for a quarter century, but that didn't seem to matter to senators too cowardly to stand up against the gun lobby. And I do mean what I say. Cowardly, too cowardly to stand up against this particular lobby. Which, by the way, see, I thought had lost strength 
but we'll get to that in a minute. And I have to say, some argue that President Biden was preoccupied with getting his infrastructure bill over the finish line. And that's why he was ready to drop David Chipman like a bad habit. I don't know whether that's true or not. Regardless, both Democratic and Republican senators are responsible for scuttling his nomination. Just in case you think he's unique, the NRA has torpedoed all but one nomination to head the ATF in the past 15 years. The administration has yet to come up with another nominee, which doesn't come as a surprise. What does this say about us as a nation? Much of Europe thinks America is a joke when it comes to guns. We experience mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. And those presidents who have cared enough to try and do something about it find themselves stymied even after the NRA unsuccessfully tried to declare bankruptcy. Like I say, it's an abnormal or maybe it's a normal lack of guts on the part of both Democrats and Republicans. It is bipartisan, this cowardice, when it comes to trying to get A, a perfectly qualified individual to take up a job, to be nominated, and to have that nomination affirmed. And by the way, some of you may not know this, but the NRA was instrumental in getting the nomination of the head of the ATF to be vetted by the United States Senate. It wasn't always like that, but the NRA saw to it that it happened. Now, I have to tell you, no matter what else happens, we will have more mass shootings with the resultant wringing of the hands, and then things will go right back to normal until attitudes about gun changes in America. That is, American attitudes about guns changes. And ironically enough, when it came to Chipman, there are just enough Democrats to join a solid block of Republicans to make any serious gun control initiative bite the dust. The idea that the Second Amendment gives every person, no matter how twisted their perspective or mental outlook, the right to run out and buy a gun is what needs to be altered. I used to think if people actually looked up the history and development of the Second Amendment, they might see things just a wee bit differently. Ever ask a gun advocate who the Second Amendment, why the Second Amendment that is, is an amendment and not part of the original body of the United States Constitution? What I've gotten is blank stares, even from people who know just a little bit about American history. When the history of this country is written long after we are all gone, it will, in my opinion, judge us very harshly for our ignorance and cowardice about guns. I learned how to use a gun and a rifle many years ago when I attended military school. Proficiency with firearms was required, like history or math. I haven't used a firearm since. No need. I feel bad for those who think they are somehow necessary.
Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.